When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Our return to normality has taken a massive leap forward this week, but politicians and scientists are still collectively urging caution. As restaurants, pubs and cinemas reopen, two words are still haunting press conferences and Whitehall briefings. The Indian variant. Will it be a stumbling block in our roadmap to normality? Will the government's plans need a rethink? We do think, I think, that it, it certainly may cause disruption to our attempts to continue down the roadmap. Lockdown is due to end in England on the 21st of June. Could this cause serious disruption to that timetable? And what does our response to the Indian variant tell us about the future of our pandemic strategy? We're going to have to get used to the idea that the pandemic isn't really over anywhere until it's over everywhere. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, will the Indian variant change our roadmap back to normality? (sighs) All well? (laughs) Yes! How are you? It feels like it's been a while. It has, it has. Um, everything's been sort of calming down a little bit for me, but now less calmy downy with the <laughs> Indian variant. Since our very first episode back in March 2020, as the prospect of the first lockdown loomed over the country, one person has guided us through every twist and turn of this pandemic. I'm Tom Whipple, and I'm the science editor at The Times. So, Tom... We're talking about the Indian variant. It's all over the headlines. It's what everybody's getting worried about. How much of an emergency is this? As ever, with the caveat that we are amidst a global pandemic, it's probably going to be fine. We've had worries about variants before. Most Mm. of the variants have turned out to be fine. Occasionally, they're not, like in December, when we discovered that the Kent variant spread faster and the entire course of the global pandemic changed. So there's this asymmetry of risk and... I guess an excess of caution because the consequences of getting it wrong are so severe. In terms of the situation at the moment, the Indian variant is here. It appears to be spreading fast, much as in November with the Kent variant. What we're seeing is a country as a whole, the cases are plateauing, but in places with the Indian variant, they are growing exponentially. According to at least some data, it could be transmitting 30, 40, 50% more than the Kent variant. 
There is no indication that it is evading our vaccines to any significant degree. So you might think, why worry? The cause for the worry is that we have modelling for what happens when we open up on the roadmap. And essentially, the modelling is we open up in June, we have a very small exit wave, as they call it, as the virus spreads a bit more. But, you know, it's not getting the people who are vulnerable. If it manages to have a far higher R number, then it's going to spread a lot more. And what you're going to get is an absolutely massive wave. And that's Leaving aside worries about long COVID, that's kind of fine if you've protected everyone who's vulnerable. But a small proportion of them aren't vaccinated. A small proportion of them will find that the vaccines don't work because that's just what happens with vaccines. They're not absolutely perfect. And so then what happens theoretically is that this small proportion of a very, very, very big number puts us back in the situation where the NHS is once again threatened with being overwhelmed. Cases of the Indian variant of COVID-19 nearly tripled last week, according to figures released by Public Health England. But working out if this variant is more able to leap from one person to another is complicated. The data on whether it's more transmissible comes from very noisy data sets. It comes from data sets where we are doing this extra testing. We're looking at travellers who've all come into the country in one big lump from India, and it started spreading in their communities, which are different communities from the country at large. Unlike in November, when the Kent variant was spreading amidst high prevalence everywhere else, here, it's spreading this preference that's similar to the lowest we had in the summer. When that happens, you can get outsized effects. It's Indian communities, predominantly, which live in multi-generational households, which a lot of them will be doing jobs which bring them into contact with a lot more people. There'll be a higher proportion of people who can't work from home. And suddenly, you're looking at a very different set of sociological circumstances. Mm. So what the scientists have been trying to work out is whether this is a virological effect, which is what we're worried about, or a sociological effect, which we're less worried about. Once this leaves these communities, will it continue to have a transmission advantage? If it doesn't, then we're essentially exactly where we were before. And there is data implying that it might not have quite that advantage. If you look at the contacts of cases who've travelled into the country, so those original index cases, you find that indeed it is about 50% more transmissible. It manages to infect 50% more of them. Mm. If you look at contacts of people who haven't travelled into the country, so these are the people that are sort of the secondary cases where it's starting to spread beyond the original communities, you start seeing it doesn't have that much advantage over the Kent variant. And at that point, you're starting to see a signal, and it has to be emphasised just how provisional all this data always is, but it looks like we've got the first hints that maybe it doesn't have that much advantage over the Kent variant after all. And we know that this variant is clearly more transmissible than the earlier form of the virus. Do we know if it's more lethal too? We don't have that data. For now, it doesn't seem like any of the variants have... There hasn't been strong evidence that any of them have got more lethal. I know you've been looking at some of the modelling around this. We know that SAGE, the government scientific advisors, have held emergency meetings and have been modelling it. Just talk us through the different scenarios. If it turns out that it is 30% more transmissible versus if it's 50% more transmissible, or if it's just the same, I mean, what effect does that have on the NHS? 
according to the models, in the case of a variant against which our vaccines have exactly the same protection, but it's 30% higher transmission, their best estimate is you end up getting hospital admissions comparable to those seen at the peak of wave one. In the case where it's 50% more transmissible, you're looking at almost double that. That's what's caused this week of panic. And just explain how the NHS would be overwhelmed, given that, you know, we're all very aware that the vaccination programme is going incredibly well, better than anyone thought. Does this mean that we would have younger people, for example, who haven't been vaccinated, would they be getting serious enough to end up in hospital? As well as, as you pointed out, you know, the cases of people who have been vaccinated and it hasn't worked or it's been less effective. We know that people in their 30s and 40s can still get this bad enough to end up in hospital. But most of the deaths are probably going to come in people older for whom the vaccine hasn't worked quite so well or for whom they haven't had it or they're immunocompromised. And that's the concern. But throughout this, often... But not always. These worst case scenarios haven't come to pass. They're planned for specifically so that we can consider what happens in these situations. What do we actually know about the Indian variant? I mean, there was lots of talk about it being a double mutation. What does that mean? And how does it compare to earlier versions of the virus? The double mutation thing, which annoyed a lot of virologists, oh. not least because it, it had many other mutations. I mean, it sounds great. It sounds great. Sounds like it an sounds upgrade. scary. It's a uh, mutant squared. That was that it had these two particular mutations, including this well-known E484K mutation, which seems to affect immunity. The interesting thing is there are three Indian variants. The one we're talking about is not the inverted commas double mutant. It ah. doesn't have the E484K. In terms of vaccine evasion, this is the least worrying of the three. So the ones, it's interesting that the one that's spreading the most is mm. the one that we have least concerns about in terms of chipping away at immunity. That's a relief. Yeah, that's good. Is there a fear that we still clearly haven't shut down the borders. That's how this has come in. Is there a danger of some of those other mutant strains making their way over? There is always a danger. Well, the the other mutant strains have made their way over and they're just not spreading. You know, our, oh, really? um, our, own, our own mutant, the Kent variant, is quite happy to outcompete them. They're not doing their business. They seem to be of less concern. But we're going to have six months of variants coming in and we're going to have to slightly get used to it and we're going to have to get used to the idea that the pandemic isn't really over anywhere until it's over everywhere and there are genuine, strong, self-interested reasons for us to vaccinate the world. Mm. In terms of the various Indian variants that we now know about, how do they compare to the Kent one, the South African, the Brazilian variant? I mean, there's been a lot of speculation about whether they're able to overcome the effectiveness of vaccines. Are any of the Indian variants in that same category? The only Indian variant we seem to need to worry about is this 0.2 variant, which is one that's spreading. That's one that's also spreading in India. I would say that for now, the balance of evidence is this variant is far less likely to evade immunity compared certainly to the South African variant and the Brazilian variant, for which there are genuine concerns. It's chipped away at it. There's none of these that are true vaccine escape mutations, mm. but these mutations seem to be better at better at getting back into people who've previously been infected and at least getting to the stage where they can then pass it on to other people, even if they don't get that sick themselves. We did have the South African variant being spotted in certain places and then somehow we do seem to have contained it. 
Do we know how we did contain the South African variant? There are still plenty of people who are a lot more concerned about the South African variant than they are about this variant. Mm. The thing about the South African variant is there's reasonable evidence that it gets past the vaccines to a degree. They're still keeping an eye on the South African variant and it's not gone away. It's there in the background and it's Mm. definitely there in the background of scientists' minds as well. So far, the Indian variant has spiked in certain areas. We can see it spreading in places like Blackburn and Bolton. Professor Dominic Harrison is the Director of Public Health in Blackburn, and he publicly called on the government to offer vaccinations to everyone over 18 in the area. But government policy hasn't shifted. This week, in Bolton and Blackburn, much to the disapproval of government ministers, the health authorities decided to go ahead with vaccinating over 18s and ignoring the official advice. So do surge vaccination policies actually work? Uh, We're struggling with central government because at the moment they are not allowing areas with high variant spread to surge vaccinate, which we think makes absolutely no sense. The JCVI, the Vaccination Committee, have been a little bit lukewarm on this. The the issue is it takes... It takes a week or more, it takes two weeks to get immunity from your first dose, at which point probably the crisis will be over. So they are persisting with the national strategy of just working down the age groups and working down the vulnerabilities. You know, who knows how that might might change? There is, at least superficially at least, quite an a, appealing idea to this wall of immunity going up, ringing these areas with the Indian variant. And how does that get decided? Is it the JCVI who makes the final call? For example, in Blackburn, we're told they're going ahead with the idea without approval from central government. How does the rollout work? There is, ostensibly, it's the JCVI that advises and the government that decides. We've delegated a lot of the decision-making to the JCVI. It was them who made the uh, amazing call. I think no one would deny it was a brilliant call back in January that we would just give first doses. And that was in the face of a lot of opposition Mm. um, from many scientists who were very sceptical about it, but it's turned out out brilliantly. Nevertheless, you know, local authorities, they, they can go ahead and ask for forgiveness later. And I suspect there's not much that we could do about it in, in extremists. And there is room for judgment, but it would be, it would nevertheless be quite something to go completely against the national plan. And for an authority like, like Blackburn, if they decide to do this, does it make sense, given that they probably have a limited number of vaccines, does it make sense to get everybody of different age groups vaccinated once or should they be bringing second doses forward? Well, this is the the counter-argument is don't worry about the younger people. Get absolutely full protection in the older people so that if there is a massive surge, it's going to spread to far fewer of them because they're all going to be far better protected and copper-bottomed. And I honestly don't know, this is is where you have to start relying on modelling and I I honestly don't know which is the best outcome. Intuitively, when I heard that they were giving out first doses, I thought that's that's a really sensible idea, but I I don't sit on the JCVI. Yet. (laughs) We, we, We all have the same goal at the end of this. The JCVI, the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation, is the body Tom mentioned that advises UK health departments on immunisation. And no, somehow, and I can only assume it's an oversight, he's not a member.
I'll be interested to see what, what the deliberations produce. And you pointed out that one of the reasons the JCVI has decided against the idea of surge vaccination is because it does take about two weeks to get immunity after you've been vaccinated. You know, I got my first dose a week ago and apparently I'm still not covered, very annoyingly. There is, there are some people saying that in younger people, that immunity develops faster and it might develop in seven to ten days. I mean, does that change the calculation? You're right. Older people take longer, younger people get it faster. So you are getting that quicker protection. All I'd say is the JCVI have proven that we're not arguing against some kind of bureaucratic behemoth unwilling to take bold and risky calls. They're well, well aware of this data and quite clearly if they if they think it's the best thing to do they they have previously very much put themselves out on a limb on on the single dose thing so it it, it wouldn't surprise me if they they look at amateur epidemiologists like me and, and think well actually you know you haven't considered x y and z <laughs> yeah we'll all have to put the amateur epidemiology away for a bit with this variant that's going around at the moment it's just the latest we've seen a number of mutations so far with countries like India, where the virus is still ripping through the population and you know circling around, and there's no end in sight. Can we expect to see more variants coming out? Inevitably, it's particularly. I mean, every time it the virus reproduces, it has a chance to mutate. It mutates at a fairly steady rate. Most mutations are just do nothing. Some are deleterious, and they will. They will just die out. Last week we saw, it was very exciting, we saw the extinction of a variant in the UK. It had been beaten into submission by our noble Kent variant and good riddance. Um, What was the other variant that we've It was the the romantically named VUI 21 Mar. And it clearly hadn't hadn't won in the survival of the fittest contest. And most mutations are going to either do nothing or make them worse, but just occasionally we're going to see one pop up that gives it some big advantage. And that's more likely to happen the more times it's uh, mutating. And once it does, it's very hard to keep it out of any country. And talking of that, I mean, does the fact that this Indian variant has turned up in this country, does it show that perhaps we still haven't got the international travel guidelines quite right? It's a really hard balancing act. You don't want to completely shut up the borders and live in splendid isolation, not least because it's completely impossible. I think there's an argument... Is it something about testing on both sides that's not quite working? Testing doesn't pick up everything. You have Mm. to test, put people in hotels, test again whilst that's going on because you can be infected and not come up on any test. We have our freight borders, which are you're never going to be able to put freight drivers into quarantine hotels every time they come over here. There are always going to be leaky ways for, to get in. The argument about borders is that it, it slows things down. It gives you a chance to spot these outbreaks as they happen and deal with them at scale rather than realising too late that it's absolutely everywhere. A Times investigation has now shown that 20,000 people were allowed to enter the UK from India in a crucial three-week period when Pakistan and Bangladesh had already been put on the red list prohibiting travel. Whitehall sources have suggested that the Prime Minister delayed adding India to the list as he was hoping to travel there himself in April to discuss a post-Brexit trade deal. 
They should have put India on the red list at the same time as Pakistan and as Bangladesh. And do you think all of this could have been avoided if we had closed the border to India more quickly and sharply at the time? I don't think it would have been avoided. We could have delayed things a little bit. Will the borders continue to be a problem? We're going to see this over the summer when people go travelling or don't go travelling. We know that the first and the second wave involved lots of importations from abroad, particularly last summer, and that was what really kicked things off ultimately. It's a very delicate balancing act because the world world can't just shut up its borders for the rest of the next year. There's a strong case for vaccinating at scale in the developing world as fast as we can and then... Yeah, reviewing border measures and imposing them when there are large outbreaks, as we saw in India. So what next? How might the Indian variant change the COVID roadmap? We'll find out more in just a moment. But first... Hello, I'm Emma Tucker, editor of The Sunday Times. It's thanks to listeners like you that we're able to provide journalism that matters. Get to the heart of the story every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Well, let's step back and... and talk a little bit about the COVID roadmap, because this seems to have had some impact on it at least. But Boris Johnson announced the plan for England in February, and Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland are planning to ease restrictions on a roughly similar timetable. Does it now look like a mistake to be going ahead with the 17th of May stage of reopening, letting people back into pubs and restaurants? (sighs) I mean, I don't know is the answer. <laughs> we don't we don't yet know whether this really is more transmissible. The irony is the best way to find out whether it is is to open up on on, you know, to open up the country, have everyone in bars and restaurants, and our our throats and noses will quite 
quickly gather the data required to actually find out whether this is a concern. I guess the, the COVID centrist position is that there is then an argument to see whether we really go back and we really stick to the June 21st opening and also whether we start thinking about some kind of tiers system if it really is a concern temporarily get more people vaccinated in those areas and in the country as a whole. As ever, we're we're sitting here in uncertainty. There are currently people going into bars, restaurants, having a lovely time. They are statistical gathering machines for the variant technical group. Neil Ferguson will be eagerly awaiting the data that they are carrying in their ACE2 receptors. And probably by the start of next week, we'll be beginning to see, well, get a far better idea of how more transmissible it is. You know, as you, as you mentioned, a lot of people are looking forward to the 21st of June, to, to life returning to something like normal. Is that now looking like it'll be in jeopardy? Oh, God, you're asking for predictions. I've been asking scientists the same thing. And the, even the best informed ones are saying <laughs> that, that they've learned from talking to journalists and they're saying, we don't do predictions. I, there's, there's, there's kind of too many unknowns. If, if I was to stick my finger in the air and say... If I had to put money down uh, and whatever other mixed metaphor I want to offer you, I would say we will still reopen on June 21st and everything will be fine because most of the time the apocalypses don't come to be and most of the time you can sound extremely sage by saying, you know what, it's a whole bunch of scaremongering. But, you know, the reason we're in this situation is because just occasionally apocalypses do come to be. Assuming that we do go ahead with the full reopening on the 21st of June... What does life look like then? We, we don't completely know what it'll, it'll look like, and some of that depends on what we find out after we go through this, this pretty major reopening that's just, just started. There's a legislation answer. You know, it, it might be that certain restrictions remain, that we have still have mask mandates in certain places, and that we have testing regimens. It's highly likely that international travel is going to be nothing like what it was before. In fact, it's certain it's going to be nothing like it was before. But there's also a bigger unknown, possibly, which is how we behave. At the moment, each adult has about four contacts a day. That's down from about 11 pre-pandemic. Scientists don't think it's going to just suddenly jump back up again to 11. We're behaving differently. We're working from home more. We're easing ourselves into the world. You know, it we're not going to return to normal, so we 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 can't necessarily predict that. You know, math, mathematicians can only go so far into their, their extreme annoyance. People aren't aren't actually equations, and <laughs> you you can't completely decide what we do. So you can come up with all sorts of scenarios. You could say, well, look, loads of people are going to be working from home. We're all getting a cardo deliveries. Actually, the nation's just fundamentally reset. Or you could say. The nation's been locked up for a year. We're going to have just a massive bacchanalian orgy. Um, and in, in that case, we're going to have so I mean, many contacts and so much I closer. assume that's what you're planning. Absolutely. You know, that's, that's, I'm, I'm going to get back into the, and, and get back into the carousing and, and, and have a lovely time. And what, what sort of, when, when things have reopened, I mean, we might have to lock down temporarily again even when everyone's vaccinated. These things don't disappear. Coronavirus isn't disappearing. It'll come back in waves. But a bit like, you know, throwing a skimming a stone, each each bounce is going to be less. It's going to be integrating itself into our lives a lot more. It might be it might, you know, you could conceive of a winter where come January, Chris Whitty and Valance do the sort of, you know, the 
like like sort of old rurais returning to the stage they stand up on their podiums and they say once again we have to save lives protect the nhs but they might just be saying we're putting this area into tier three or they might even just be saying come on guys let's work from home if you can um let's wear masks if you can we don't want to disrupt life in britain any more than we need to but there are these Mm. simple things we can do we find that a country that's more attuned to disease is is better able to respond in rational ways. That means we don't have to respond in extreme ways. In April, the Department of Health announced that there will be a, a booster shot for everyone in, in starting in the autumn. Pfizer has a booster shot already, which is targeting the new variants that, are, that have shown up. Is that the point at which we can all relax and think we're covered Or is this just something that's going to keep mutating and vaccines will have to keep trying to keep up? It'll keep mutating. It won't keep mutating probably in a terribly worrying way, not like the flu. It's not going to find ways that it significantly chips away at immunity. At least we we really hope not, and there's reasons to hope not. There are lots of scenarios you could imagine. The one that I've heard mooted most often is that Elderly people, when they get their flu shot, at risk people, when they get their flu shot, they also get a coronavirus shot that just tops up the immunity they already have and also maybe adapts a bit to whatever's circulating at the time. And that seems that seems eminently plausible to me. And we, we used to hear a lot about the phrase, rather controversially, herd immunity. When do scientists think we, the UK, might reach herd immunity? And does that change because of the variants? Yeah, herd immunity, it's not some line where we sort of leap over it and we're like, aha. Herd immunity changes with transmissibility. So in the in the raw equations, and bear in mind that not only do people not behave like equations, but annoyingly viruses don't either. Ah. But in the raw equations, herd immunity is precisely related to transmissibility. So in the old the old traditional virus, the one that that afflicted us last year, R was three. And that meant that each person passed it on to three others. Now, if the three people they sneezed on, if two of those were immune, then they were only passing it on to one. R was, the effective R was one, and the pandemic was over. So what that means is two thirds of the population need to be immune, and you got herd immunity. Now, if it's up to four and a half with the Kent variant. That changes. Let's say that this, and that this is sort of semi-apocalyptic and probably not the case. Let's say that this one's up to six. Well, then you've got to, if you sneeze on six people, you want five of them to be immune. And in those circumstances, you've suddenly changed the herd immunity to five sixths, which I, I can't work out offhand as a percentage. But if it was four fifths, then it would be 80%. So, so it's, it's more than 80%. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's affected by that. But then, of course, immunity wanes and you know, not everyone who's vaccinated is immune. So, and remember, we haven't vaccinated children at all but then there's some argument we still don't have the answer to that the effective r amongst young people is itself already less than one because they're not as infectious the equations have to get not only is the virus not obeying equations they have to get a heck of a lot more complicated to get close to modeling that so the real answer is the more transmissible it is the higher herd immunity is and we really want to just get as many people vaccinated as possible You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. 
with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, the science editor at The Times, Tom Whipple. You can find all of Tom's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producer today was James Shield. The executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by David Crackles. If there's a story you'd like us to look into, any ideas for future episodes, or any thoughts on what you've just heard, then please do get in touch. Send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you tomorrow.